we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Today on Buffalo What's Next, we're talking men's mental health. I am Charles Gilbert, associate producer, and June is National Men's Mental Health Awareness Month. Before I introduce the guest for the hour, I wanted to read off some stats. From Anxiety and Depression Association of America, nearly one in 10 men experience depression or anxiety, but less than half will receive treatment. In 2021, men died four times more than women by suicide. From American Psychological Association, 26% of men of color get mental health services compared to 45% of non-Hispanic white men who experience daily feelings of anxiety or depression. And according to the National Institution of Minority Health and Health Disparity, African-Americans are 20% more likely to experience serious psychological distress, such as major depressive disorder, than white Americans. Today, I am pleased and honored to be sitting across from Andre Stokes Jr., who is, if I'm correct, you are the Director of Specialty Substance Use Disorder Services at Best Self Behavioral Health. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me here. So, brief background on Andre. He's born in Buffalo, received his bachelor's degree in human and community service at Empire State University. He received his master's degree in social work at the University of Buffalo, and you are currently in the process of completing your doctoral studies at St. John's Fisher University in Rochester. That's correct, yes. (laughs) You are also an author of Always a Great Day with Counselor Dre, which we are going to get into because you did do that book with your son, Gabriel yes. Stokes. Yes. Um, how are you today? I'm very well. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for, for having me here. Um, so, yeah. I'm, how are you today? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, one of the things that I always do, I always tend to do this when I'm talking to um, men is I always ask that question, like, how are you doing? Right. right. I remember um, speaking to your brother. Mm-hmm. Carl Stokes, who was my professor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And he ended up becoming one of my close friends and someone I go to for guidance whenever I'm going through things. And um, I asked him, like I do a lot of people, I do a mental health check. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the mental health check, I learned this from watching a podcast, Brandon Marshall's I Am Athlete. And they did what that check-in is. Basically, how are you doing mentally, physically, and financial or business side? So I pose that question to you. 
<laughs> how are you doing on those three categories? I'm doing okay on those three categories. Uh, very, very blessed, and I'll knock on wood as I do so. <laughs> um, feeling feeling pretty great these days uh, mentally, um, receiving a lot of clarity and, you know, just being around good people. You know, that, that, that means that can make or break you in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, having a good social circle, having people you trust, and having a, a nice, strong atmosphere. Um, and on, on the business perspective, um, doing okay, um, making sure I stay afloat, um, making sure the family's good. And, um, yeah, just going to keep moving forward and keep pushing forward. Before we dive into the core of this conversation, I wanted to just ask you, because you are, you know, in the mental health world mm-hmm. and – me and you are both men of color. What made you decide to get into this field? Okay, that's an excellent question. Thank you. Uh, what made me get, decide to get into this field is um, a lot of it had to do with my upbringing. So growing up, my brother and I, we came through humble beginnings, hum, humble background. And we had experienced a lot of a lot of things related to mental health challenges, a lot of things related to, to substance use. The family dynamic wasn't where it would, could, should have been at mm-hmm. the time. And throughout my childhood coming up, I had observed quite a bit of of, of challenges and, and struggles within the realm of um, mental health, within the realm of communication and so forth. And that kind of molded me in a way throughout my, my childhood years to kind of be more in tune with, with the mental health aspects of, of the family dynamics and to try to learn to figure out how to navigate that with, with limited resources, whether they were financial resources, um, whether they were family resources and, and so forth. So that kind of set the, the platform and set the stage for my interest in, in the mental health field. In particular, what can I do to contribute to other people who are possibly experiencing these challenges as a, as a child. So that's kind of where that started. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. I want to commend and I want to applaud you for being one of the very few, especially men of color mm-hmm. to be in this field, because as I was doing research, I you know came across something that they say that only 4% of the doctoral level of psychology workers are people of color. Mm-hmm. I know for me, I have a therapist who happens to be a white woman. She was recommended to me by my cousin, but my first therapist I had was a white man mm-hmm. who made me feel less than a person. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was going through a tough time with being a a new dad and I remember what led me into doing this. Mm-hmm. Um me and my daughter's mother had gotten into a very heated argument and it was to the point where I blacked out, you know, I blacked out. I don't remember what happened. And next thing you know, I am in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And after that, they recommended that I see a therapist. And when I went there, he talked down to me. You know, he made me feel like I was a kid, like less than, and I shut that out. I told myself, I'm never doing this again, Mm -hmm. you know, and I know that is a big problem, especially with people of color, right? That we feel like we don't have that representation of therapists, counselors, things like that. So... 
I applaud you, like I said, and I commend you. you for being one of the few that can be in that field. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So one of the things that you had mentioned was your past right. and the trauma that you suffered. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I didn't realize about trauma, PTSD, was anyone and everyone has it in some form. Certainly. You know, growing up, I heard those initials and the first thing I thought about was military. Yep. Because that's literally every time I heard PTSD, I thought literally that's military. No one else can have it because no one else suffers from it. Right, right. Until I was with my therapist and I was telling her about when my father left. My father left when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And watching him walk out the door and how that impacted me and had an impact pretty much up till I was 30. Mm -hmm. She told me, she was like, you know you have PTSD. And I was like, nah. She was like, that's trauma. Right. You suffered trauma and whenever someone leaves, it sparks that trauma. Absolutely. You, you relive yeah. that um, episode. So I want to dive into like the 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 trauma that men mm -hmm. suffer that we don't talk about. Okay. Yep. Because that's that's a thing that is always stigma or a stereotype that we aren't allowed to showcase or show our feelings. Right. Um how do you feel about that? Uh so that had fluctuated throughout throughout my personal development um i can i can say within my let's say teenage years within my my mid to late or yeah mid to late 20s i i definitely felt that was the way it was supposed to be um as men we're supposed to always be resilient in in any situation and in part being being resilient when in, in any situation incorporates never complaining and that being resilient in any situation incorporates uh keeping it to yourself and keeping it within, you know, within your spirit and not kind of, uh, for lack of better words, contaminating the area with with your needs. Right. Mm -hmm. Because as men, we are we are protectors, we're providers. Um, we provide guidance to our to our families, to our children and, and so forth. So in my mind at the time, I thought that was how the structure of that was supposed to be until uh, I realized that my the situations and the challenges that I was going through in my 20s we're not improving. And it took me a while to realize that. So upon realization of that, I realized that I needed to go the other route because the, the method that I was doing just wasn't working. There and was what method was that? Silence. Hmm. That method was silence. Um, silence is, is, is a, it's a killer. It is. It's, it's literally a killer. So, you know, going that, going that route, I always thought that was the right thing to do until I realized it wasn't because my problems were getting worse. Uh, those problems included um, financial vulnerability uh, as a new father. Those problems included uh, relationship tr um, struggles as a new father and so forth. Um, so it got to a point where I finally admitted that maybe what I'm doing right now with the silence is simply not working. That took me a long time because again, as men, we have that pride. 
Mm-hmm. We have that ego and those things can be counterintuitive to recovery. Right. So as I realized I needed to go the opposite direction, I found the benefit in speaking to a counselor at the time. I believe I was 20, 27. I think I was 27. Um, and I found that it was it was starting to help a little bit. And, and just in small doses, because at first, of course, when you switch spectrums, I was a little bit resistant to the things that the counselor had to say. And I was resistant to even the idea. Um, but once I kind of let myself go and put my guard down, I saw that my ability to think was a little more clear. It was a little more sharp. And I was able to think more logically versus emotionally. And um, throughout that transition, I found that I was I was incorrect for a large portion of my life um, before that. And um, that kind of opened up a new door into what I wanted to do career wise and what I wanted to do socially as far as uh, mental health and emotional development. You said a lot right there. And, and I'm, you know, processing everything that you said now. Would you saying you were like your your form of dealing with it was silence Mm -hmm. very similar to me Mm -hmm. you know i even to this day sometimes tend to when i'm getting angry when i feel like that i go quiet i don't speak but through through therapy and also just you know my mother she still to this day gets a little you know (laughs) she gets a little upset with me (laughs) because she'll be able to tell and then she'll ask me like what's wrong and i won't say nothing yeah and she'll be like, all right, like, her thing was just like, she was just like, if something's bothering you, just say you don't want to talk about it right now, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm learning to kind of, even in my 30s, yeah. I'm learning like, okay, let me just say, okay, I don't want to talk about it right now because I have to I kind of gather my thoughts, right. figure out how can I express it without showing emotion mm-hmm. to a degree. And I say that because we tend to react off of emotion first. Mm -hmm. And I've learned to kind of get the emotion out first. How I do it is I journal. I journal first. And then after I let everything out, raw emotion, then I'm able to come to the table and say, okay, this is what's going on because I've let that emotion get out of me first and then I come rational. As we're both fathers, and you were saying, you know, as as men, we are the provider, we are the protector. Mm -hmm. Recently, I was in a conversation with a group of with a group of men, Mm -hmm. fathers, and they were talking about how they have to suffer in silence. You know, similar to what we were just saying. But as fathers, it's it seems like it's more intense. Mm You know, because we can't show vulnerability. Society tells us we can't show that vulnerability. I know that you was kind of speaking about the reasons, you know, why. But dive more into that as far as fatherhood goes Mm -hmm. and the suffering that fathers go through okay sure um so that that's a, um that's an umbrella that has uh, a couple different pathways below it mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm very glad just that you asked this question so with regard to fatherhood black male fatherhood we have to think about a few things we have to think about the relationships that we have with our children 
the relationships we have with their mothers and the relationships that we have with uh, families on both sides. That's a lot to take in just right there. Yes. That's, that's just within those, la- within those avenues, that's a whole lot. And then we have to think about the importance of maintaining structure um, the best we can so that our children can be better people than we were, mm-hmm. than we are, right? That's the ultimate goal. Um, and that incorporates its own sets of challenges because while doing that, we still have to um, maintain our our clarity throughout throughout all of those all of those roles. Maintain the clarity, while of course um, providing financially, which is you know part of the natural role, of course. So, when when taking on all those sorts of things, we have to think about how our our mental health is impacted while taking care of all those roles. And of, of course, we all know parenting is not easy. Uh, and then there's another there's the other dynamic of people who are single parents as well and who may or may not have the support that they need within the development of their own children. Right. So um, that also opens up the door to the mental health of the child as well. And when we're thinking about the mental health of the child, that coincides with either possibly the lack of mental health, according to the statistics, the lack of mental health that black fathers have lack of black black of black mental health treatment that fathers have. So if one person is in need of mental health treatment, there there that's a significant sign that other people in the household are also in need of that mental health treatment because when one person is affected, more uh, one or more are also affected because the dynamic is living within the same home or or maybe even split between homes. So either way it's a unit and um, the mental health treatment is never just for one person. Right. When one person can benefit from it in the household, another person can benefit from it because when we are a unit, we don't suffer alone, whether we see it or not. Yeah, because I know for me, what motivated me to get into therapy mm-hmm. was seeing my daughter go through it. Yeah, right. You know, to see her at a young age going in there and telling, like mm-hmm. talking to her therapist and, and being able to just get there. I sat there and I told myself, if she can do it, why can't I do it? Right. You know, and right. and I applaud her for it. I applaud any young person that can know I need to speak to someone right more to come on buffalo what's next after a quick break this is buffalo what's next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward to have your voice heard press the talk to us button on the wbfo app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air join us on twitter at wbfo or email us at news at wbfo.org together we'll have the conversations that are needed This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Buffalo What's Next. We are here with Andre Stokes, Jr. I am Charles Gilbert. I'm talking about mental health, men's mental health, as June is mental health, men's mental health awareness month. I want to kind of go back to the suffering silence because as you were talking, I did, your brother used the metaphor in our class. Mm -hmm. And it stands out to me. I always use this comparison when you were talking about like just keeping everything in. Right. 
and he used the metaphor of taking out the trash. Mm. And when you don't take the trash out and you see it and you're just like, I'll take it out another day. Yeah. And you just keep on delaying, delaying, but you keep piling on. Then eventually when you go to take the garbage out, the bottom just the right. bottom explodes. Right. Right. And that's what happens with a lot of men. We keep things bottled up mm-hmm. and we keep suppressing and and pushing down it just not letting our feelings out right and then eventually we snap right you know we resort to substance mm-hmm. we resort to drugs we resort to alcohol speak to that as far as the substance coping through substance because i know mm-hmm. you are as i said your director of specialty substance use mm-hmm. yes. so speak on the usage of substance, uses of drugs and alcohol, and coping through like them men coping with that. Right. Sure. Yeah. So, um, with the with the aspect of substance use, um, and tying that into silence, a lot of times. So, since as men, um, we are a little less likely to initially communicate our concerns or the way we feel to whomever is in the area, um, and we are we tend to naturally resort to silence, at least in the first stages. Um, And like you mentioned, I'm not ready to talk about that yet, or I need a little bit more time. That certainly works. That certainly works. Um, And I think one of the challenges that comes after that is when are you going to be ready to talk about that? Uh, So when folks are in the stage of not being ready to talk about whatever their challenge is at the moment, that's where the substance use can start to either begin or increase for folks who are already using. So when we think about substance use, we think about a lot of the negative factors that are associated with it, which are, you know, several. And the perspective of a person who is using, whether they're using alcohol or, or, or marijuana or whatever their drug of choice is, they're using for a reason. Mm-hmm. And this is something we just talked about um, two days ago um, when folks are using, they're using for a reason. So, of course, that is engaging in, in an unhealthy behavior, but from the perspective of the person that's using, that may be a behavior that is productive to them in that moment. So, you know, a lot of folks use um, alcohol as, um, you know, to, as, a, as a coping mechanism to, to forget. Um, same with um, um, marijuana, same with opioids and opiates. Uh, and then you have the, you know, the... The stimulant drugs, you have the cocaine, you have the crystal meth, crystal meth, um, and those things can also keep folks in an, an elevated state of not thinking about their actual problems. So the 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 catch twenty two with that is a person may not be thinking about their actual problems at the point at that moment when they're when they're using. However, the problems are now becoming compound issues because okay, I'm not thinking about whatever I'm thinking of at at the moment, but I'm also destroying the environment that I'm in or I'm also showing my children that um, using using substances or whatever a person's drug of choice is might be the way to go to deal with those problems of course we know that's not but within the realm of addiction the mental health and the substance use they go they tie they tie tie together and they go hand in hand so some people will use because of mental health reasons and then some people have mental health uh, challenges because they use so they intertwine with one another, um, and they when they do, you know, folks are duly diagnosed 
Mm-hmm. And the presenting problem can always fluctuate depending on what they're going through during that time of their life. Okay, because I know, and I'm I'm a very transparent person, mm-hmm. so I will um, I don't mind opening up and letting people know about my past, my transgressions, things I've went through. Right. My father is alcoholic, mm-hmm. and I mean it's to a point where. You know, my mother once told him that if you keep this up, you're going to like you're going to die alone, you know, and and he he doesn't. He just kept going, you know, he he kept going and and it was to the point where I had to separate myself from him, Mm -hmm. you know, and me doing that was me being like, okay, I there's nothing I can do for you. Mm-hmm. You have to want to get whatever help you need. Yeah. And, you know, he unfortunately is not. So, yeah. you know, all all I can do for that situation is just, you know, keep him in my purse and everything. But mm-hmm. um, one thing about, like, the whole drug use and, and drinking is I, I don't, it it always uh, it always seems to frustrate me, mm-hmm. you know, when when I see that, because I'm looking at it as I know that there's trauma, there's there's certain things that's going on because I can look at someone and it's okay to have like a drink occasionally, mm-hmm. but when it becomes a recurring thing, like you can't function without doing it. Right. I look at that as that's. There, there's something rooted there mm-hmm. that needs to be handled. Right. Speaking, like I just said, we are all speaking about mental health, mm-hmm. but mental health became more heightened during the pandemic. Yes. Obviously, the loss of jobs, the loss of income. How do you feel like that took a toll on men's mental health? Because as men, we are the providers. Yeah. And if we don't have income if we don't have a job mm-hmm. how can we then provide for our family or how can we provide for ourselves so how did that take a toll on men's mental health from your perspective yeah sure um so the the pandemic took a significant toll on the mental health of a lot of the um men and black men that i've seen and that i that i work with programmatically in particular when when Jobs are shutting down, places were closing, and you know a lot of a lot of people didn't have a place to go to for work. And then that also the pandemic also made it more difficult to seek employment as well, mm-hmm. um, because more places were closed. Uh, I, I've seen a significant decrease in in mental health uh, treatment. Uh, so individuals who were consistent with their with their sessions with their treatment became less consistent. I've also seen an increase in uh, substance use um, due to the pandemic because there was, again, going back to the coping mechanism of, of you know, not having not having employment and, and having financial needs for, for children, ourselves, our families and so forth. Uh, we've seen the substance use increase um, in, in several different areas and a lot of overdoses and some some deaths associated with that. But the the pandemic really really put a a a hurting on 
the mental health of men overall because when folks when men aren't able to work that's that kind of goes against the natural inclination to protect and provide right mm-hmm. um and being able to have a steady income um and then losing that income now there's now there's different sorts of risk there's a financial risk um there's housing possible housing loss uh where are we going to go right are we going to be at risk of um, having to move in with somebody or sleeping on the streets or whichever the case is. Um, and there's there's also the the social risk too. So going back to the male ego, right? Um, not having a job due to the pandemic impacts the the, the male ego, which is associated with uh, the, the bravado that we that we naturally have, right? So um, it's kind of like a taking, the, the the teeth away from a German shepherd, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> so you know, a German shepherd doesn't have his teeth. Now he he a male German shepherd might feel a little a little less than, right? Yes. Because that's his primary weapon. That's his primary tool to protect his 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 puppies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I like to use a lot of metaphors and stuff like that. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the the pandemic had really really put a dampering on um, not only the mental health. Of, of men of, of black men but the treatment as well you know so the you know when folks are going through things they may be getting to a point where they're less likely to go to treatment because it's gotten too bad and a lot of times when from what my perspective and what i've seen within the people that um that receive services in the community is when it gets too far if you miss one two three sessions it's like well i'm too far in the hole i can't go back now I've already been gone for a month or a month and a half or whichever it's been. So that the the length of time in between sessions and treatment definitely plays a role in whether or not somebody is able to or willing to continue. That 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 gap is a significant factor in, in the continuation or discontinuation of services. Now, with the decrease in, in the treatment, mm-hmm. would you say that is because with them losing the jobs that, you know, some jobs they provide health insurance, some, mm-hmm. you know, and if they lose their job, they lose their benefits. Right. Would would that also be the case when it comes to it? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. So the um, the benefit, the factor of the benefits um, also holds a significant amount of weight because, again, with the health insurance, we have to think about how many people are on family plans. Mm-hmm. So if I lose my job, then. I don't have health insurance, which may be one thing. But if I lose my job and I don't have health insurance and I'm on a family plan, then my five kids don't have health insurance or my wife doesn't have health insurance or whatever it is. So it goes from a problem to a much more significant problem because you have um, family members that rely on you for for the health insurance. And, you know, some people see doctors more than others. Some Mm -hmm. people have different ailments. Some people don't. But that encompasses the risk, the risk of several factors and how how someone can try to address those those factors once once that that time comes, the time of unemployment due to the pandemic. In addition, the pandemic, there, there's another factor with the pandemic being someone losing their job, not because of something they did or because of poor performance or because they were showing up late or not showing up at all. Some people lost their jobs out of their control, which is a much more significant blow to take when you know you've performed well and you've always been consistent, always been on time, always done good work, but you still ended up losing your job. That's another hard pill to swallow. So thinking about how someone can 
kind of wrap their head around having these major consequences for something they didn't do impacts the the overall mental health of not just the person that lost their job, but the the family members as well. And then also within the means of the pandemic, we witnessed the George Floyd murder, mm-hmm. which brought a lot of PTSD. Right. You know, I've never in my life witnessed a murder on camera like George Floyd. Right. Right. We've heard of stories of this. Like they, you know, they said that his murder was pretty much a public lynching. Uh-huh. That brings up the PTSD. Yeah. That brings up for black for black men seeing that, which then brings up our history with police. Yep. You know, we all know police were originally slave catchers. Mm-hmm. So we have that trauma with our history with police. Yeah. And then we just see that heightened level of paranoia, anger, frustration, yeah. all within the midst of being stuck in a house. Yeah. As a mental health specialist, when you, if you ever dealt with someone that was going through that, how were you able to like help guide them through whatever trouble that they were facing during that time? Because I know me personally, I was speaking to my therapist and, and the reason why I appreciate my therapist as much as I do is because she's very open and honest. Mm-hmm. One of the first things she said when I was expressing my feelings to her about everything that was going on, she was like, I can empathize with you, but I can't relate to what you're That's going it. through. That's it. But what I can do, let me give you this person's number. Yep. Reach out to him. It's a black man. Reach out to him. Because uh-huh. that's someone that you can speak more to about these certain problems that you're going through. Yeah. So if you had if you had anyone that during that time or still because I mean even though people are saying that we're over like we're kind of getting out of the pandemic we still have and we will always have injustice for sure how do sure. how do you deal with that when people come to you about that okay i think um as far as the injustice in the pandemic, one of the things that I've I've done was um, I've been able to kind of put together a lot of support groups, and it's just isn't isn't even for work. It's just for just for for personal as a as a person in the community. So I've been able to put together a lot of support groups um, virtually um, and even some in person uh, that addressed the the intolerance and the you know the systemic racism and walking around with a target on your back and how those are exacerbated by the, the pandemic, right? Because as as you just mentioned, we are coming out of the pandemic, but the, the residual effects are still there. Mm-hmm. You know, some people still hadn't been able to get back to work, you know, and, and so forth. So um, being being a, a member of the community, even before I'm a, I'm a counselor, uh, I think I, I hold true to that. And I think that's that's important because I wouldn't have been a counselor if I wasn't a part of this community, you know, so that, that, that kind of comes first. Um, so I think 
showing a lot of people, especially black men, that uh, black men are are in need of each other in order for to to obtain that support. Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. One hundred percent. And kind of reminding folks that you know, getting people together in a room and reminding them that they you know they're all here going through traveling on the same the same in the same car going down the same road at the same time. Um, of course, that road is going to split into different areas, but still being a black man uh, in America has its challenges. Some people are still not willing to admit that, and that's 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 okay. That's <laughs> that's, that's okay. That's yeah. Um, <laughs> that just comes, you know, as part of that is the denial piece, but that's for later. Um, and just showing that support and maintaining a frame of, I'm always going to be here. For as long as I can, and while I'm here, I'm gonna support um, everyone I can as much as I can. And I think when people know of a consistent and constant person, um, also such as yourself, um, people will gravitate more towards you, and that that helps with the overall processing of things that are happening in the country. So, black men being around black men is one of the most healthy things that we can do for each other. I mean, in, in of of course, with regard to being positive about about right. you know about whatever the situation is, and when people understand that, they develop a in time they are able to develop a sense of comfort. So now it's oh, there's a group of black men over here. Maybe I should be over here too, mm-hmm. you know. And that kind of it's very very subtle, yet very effective. So I think just us coming together. And acknowledging that we're on the same, in the same vehicle, at the same time, brings forth a sense of community intellectually. Now, of course, we all live in different places in the city, but we're still in the same boat uh, intellectually and spiritually, emotionally. Because when I go outside, they're gonna look at you the way just the way they look at me, right? And vice versa. It doesn't matter if it's Andrea Charles. Mm-hmm. It's still it's still whatever it is, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, now I want to get into a, a subject matter that this whole thing is near and dear to me, but because I'm actively on social media, mm-hmm. my daughter is actively on social media, pretty sure your son is actively on social media. Not yet, not yet. Okay. I, I've been trying okay. to hold off on that. Like, <laughs> I've been trying to hold off. Which I'm <laughs> I'm surprised, you know, because most, you know, most parents kind of be like, okay, about 15, 16, yeah. you can, you know, kind of get on social media, but there's like kind of rules and restrictions yeah, on, yeah, on yeah, what yeah. needs to be done. Yeah. But um, I do want to applaud you for keeping him not on social media <laughs> As far as much as he's not been able to, right. <laughs> but um, we we hear about the impact on social media on women, right? Yes, we we know we've seen so much. I mean, even as far as recently, um, DC Young Fly's uh, wife, right, right, Jackie all had passed away because of operation. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the look that social media presents of how the woman should look. But social media also has an impact on men. It goes into toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. There are numerous 
amount of influencers mm-hmm. in the social media world. There is a psychologist and an author, media commentator, and he's now serving as a chancellor of Ralston College, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Yeah, that's Jordan Peterson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, who was an author of a book, The 12, Ru- 12 Rules for Life, which is pretty much teaching and telling young men to stop being girly, stop being girly men. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the late media, our internet personality and image consultant, Kevin Samuel. Mm-hmm. And then you have social media, who a lot of people deem to be the predecessor to Mm -hmm. Kevin Samuel, Andrew Tate, Mm -hmm. who have all kind of pushed this narrative of some form of toxic masculinity to a degree. What is your thoughts on just the toxic masculinity in general? Because Mm -hmm. I know for me, from I want to say the beginning of time, it was always the men aren't supposed to show emotion. Every time I think of that, I think of um, 50 Cent's movie, Get Rich or Die Trying. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, his OG, whatever you want to refer to him as, had a line, which was show no love. Yeah, Love will get you killed. That's me in my 20s. (laughs) See? (laughs) That's me in my 20s, 100%. 100%. Which now, you know, that's a toxic position to have. Very. You know, men aren't boys aren't supposed to show no emotion. Boy supposed to bust his knee, get up, brush it off. Yeah. What are you crying for? Mm-hmm. You know, even though crying is therapeutic. Right. Right. It's a release. Yes. You're releasing energy. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that <laughs> I realized is whenever I get a good cry out, I'm very tired afterwards. One hundred percent. You take that. You take that nap afterwards. I I know all about it. <laughs> so let let's talk about that. Let's talk about the toxic masculinity and the way it has an impact on men's mental health. Yeah. So um, I think I think the toxic masculinity piece that's that's been a, a hot topic for the last last I'd say seven ish years. And I think a big part of toxic masculinity is defining what that is that's where a lot of the confusion can come from so for some people toxic masculinity might mean one thing for uh, another person toxic masculinity might mean a different thing so i think the term is interchangeable depending on the the group mm-hmm. so with influencers like uh andrew tate um I've seen some of his his commentary and some of it is pretty ridiculous things that he has said that I've that I've seen um, with regard to like ownership and of other people and all that kind of stuff. So it's 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 a mixture. So it's kind of hard sometimes to pinpoint what 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 the message is from from some influencers. And on the on the other hand of Dr. Jordan Peterson, uh, I hadn't read the book, but I, I do plan to 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 buy it so that I can you know, understand what he's, what he's, see what the book is, is, uh, entails. But with the, the, the overall essence of toxic masculinity in, in some forms, it can be used as uh, a weapon against, against men. So let's say, for example, um, you want better for yourself in some other ways. And if that, if you wanting better for yourself in some other ways incorporates the removal of some other aspects of your life, some people might call that toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's like there's a there's a subtle battle within the within the term 
that I think hasn't been finished yet, and it probably won't be finished, um, as, as I realize as we talk through it. But toxic masculinity has been a hot topic since its inception, and I'm not exactly sure where the term will lead will lead to in the next two three years. I'm I'm pretty sure it may it may change because a lot of the language and a lot of the buzzwords that we have with us kind of alter and they they can fluctuate and transition throughout throughout media and throughout culture. The emotional aspect we have to think about that kind of toxic masculinity being used against a, a young boy to teach him to hold things inside, which goes back to the learned silence that we we often see in black male adults. And with that, with the toxic, you know, masculinity and the the way it plays out in social media, we also have imagery. We also have the display of how men should be, especially black men. How do you think that depiction of how a man should be through social media how do you think that impact has on young men i think that has a very very negative impact on on young men when they're seeing certain imagery within the media within social media within music videos um i think the media does a really good job at painting negative pictures of, of us in a lot of cases um and you know with the with the tv and, and screens being so popular amongst our, our children our teenagers they are much easier accessed through through these these bodies these media bodies and that plays a significant role in behavior as well so when we see certain things we become more and more desensitized to to those images to those behaviors and children are more likely to engage in those behaviors because they've learned that a person that they admire through social media or a person that they admire through um, a music video speaks about this or you know, acts in this manner in these types of situations. And the desensitization process um, continues throughout their development because again, they're, they're young children. So they may think they know more than they do in a lot of cases, um, but at the end of the day, we know what's best for, for them, for our children. And those processes can become counterintuitive when they have such easy access to everything from a phone, right? So uh, a, a teenager can look up just about anything and find it. Mm -hmm. And that goes into, you know, the type of things that are being fed to our children and how it can be a full-time job as a parent even monitoring that because, of course, we know we can't be with our children 24-7. And if we are with our children 24-7, how tiring would that be to literally sit next to them all day and watch them? The, that, that, <laughs> the thought the, of that is exhausting. Yeah, the, the mental <laughs> right, the, the mental, mental aspect right, right, of right. that is very exhausting. I know like with me and my daughter, I had to get to that point recently of being like okay you're you're she's about to turn 17 mm -hmm. i had to realize you are one year away yeah. from being on your own not well being legally an adult mm -hmm. and that took and still is a process that i'm trying to cope with yeah you know because it's like okay now i have to like relinquish you to the to the real world mm -hmm. and that plays a huge part in my mental where I'm like just sitting here hoping that the world doesn't eat her alive. Yeah. 
with you having your son, how is that, you know, raising, because I have a daughter, mm -hmm. you have a son. Yeah. How is it raising a young 16-year-old with everything going on with social media, with the heightened awareness of, of men's mental health, with yeah. you being a person in this field? Because mm -hmm. there's a question that I have, because mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things where it's like, as a person who's in this field, is it that that stigma of when there's a problem with your with your son, mm -hmm. you get into that therapist mode mm -hmm. where you're like <laughs> having a therapy session with him? Yeah, you know, like does does that happen from time to time? From time to time, it does. But I will say this: even as a as a as a trained counselor and clinician, and you know, credentials and all of, you know, edu educational stuff, a lot of the times that stuff doesn't matter because when you know within the house, my my reaction may be less clinical because I'm a I'm a natural parent first, mm -hmm. you know. So so sometimes I have to check myself and understand if I react this way. Uh, not bad, but I, I can react this way, but do I want to, you know? So that that's so it's like it's like okay, which which train track do I want to get on? Do I want to be do I want to be regular Andre? Do I want to be therapist Andre? And a lot of cases, I think having finding a combination between the two is helpful. Speaking of your son, mm -hmm. y'all wrote a book together. We did. Explain before we wrap this up. I want to get into the book, and then I want to you know ask you one more question. Okay, but. What motivated the book mm -hmm. and what motivated you to do the book with your son? Because mm -hmm. I know through your brother's media company yeah. or partner, right? Yeah. Okay. Through y'all partnership with that media company, y'all have tons of books with like your kids. Mm -hmm. talk, me, talk me through the process of what motivated you and your son to do the book. Okay, sure thing. So the uh, the process that motivated my son and I to do that book was we had dealt with a particular family restructuring that had impacted both of us, right? It impacted him as a young child, 10 or 11 at the time, mm -hmm. and it impacted me as a 30-something-year-old father, right? So we both had our own challenges due to the issue that we had, and we dealt with them in different ways, and a lot of those ways weren't healthy, Right. So, again, we're talking about trauma. In a way, through him, I relived a piece of trauma that I had experienced as, as a child. So it brought back some memories that I honestly hadn't really even dealt with yet. And we came to the realization that we have something in common with regard to a being people of single parents, right? We have that in common. So we thought of a way to get that on paper. And then that's where the idea of the book came came out. And the, the big motivation behind that book was to not only understand that people go through things, but to make it culturally based and to normalize the need for children to get into counseling. You know, of course, with the guidance of their parents as well. But to normalize normalize that. Because, again, going back to the little boy who gets hurt and they tell him to get up, wipe it off, and keep playing, well, that creates a problem. And then other situations, we learn silence. 
So the book was uh, an attempt and a movement to kind of fight the silence, fight the silence of mental health and fight the things that you're going through and understanding that it's okay to talk to somebody. It's it's okay to talk to a counselor or a teacher or a neighbor or somebody at your church, anybody who's a safe person, right? Because we do a lot of, you know, a lot of things regarding children and safety and, and those sorts of things. So having that at the forefront and making it a children's book on its own um, has had some benefits on children's and, and some parents' view on counseling and what counseling is. So we were happy to put that together and, and kind of work in tandem as a team. Um, and, you know, we had fun with it. We made sure we wrote down, um, you know, words that rhyme with each other and kind of made it into like a, you know, it, if you put a beat on it, it's a song. It's Because <laughs> everything rhymes. So, <laughs> And if anyone was interested in, in getting that book, where could they get the book? The book can be found on Amazon. Um, it's called Always a Great Day with Counselor Dre. Um, all you'd have to do is type in Andre Stokes or Gabriel Stokes into the search box and it'll come up. And a uh, closing question sure. that we have for this show, Buffalo, What's Next, is what does Buffalo need? But I'm going to ask you, mm. what does the men in Buffalo need? Mm. That's, a, that's a good one. And, man, there's a there's, there's hundred answers to that that I can think of off the bat. But I think the best one right now at the moment is the men in Buffalo need togetherness. The men in Buffalo, especially the black men in Buffalo, need community. And the men in Buffalo need each other to to kind of rely on, to lean on and to to provide and receive support so that we can ultimately become better versions of ourselves um, while we you know take care of our families and um, may, try to maintain employment and try to get the bills paid and all those sorts of things. So I think togetherness is, is the, the first step and the best the, the best step right now. Andre Stokes, I thank you. Thank you for this opportunity you are my first interview oh on buffalo what's next oh look at that (laughs) look at that so if anyone wanted to get in contact with you um for anything how can they reach you they can reach me uh they can reach me at two different ways they can reach me at my email address which would be andre underscore stokes four number four at yahoo.com and folks can also reach my brother and i um, for anything at Dr. Carl Stokes Jr. at gmail.com. And the support groups that you were talking about, are those open to the public or are they? They are open to the public. Okay, so, every, so they sorry. can so they can email you in regards to those support groups. They sure can. They sure can. And if I um, when I get inquiries, I can uh, I can put something on the schedule and put out an open Zoom link for, for people to come in and talk about anything as a group. Andre Stokes, I thank you. Thank you. I am Charles Gilbert. This has been Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. Mm-hmm.